Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, this evening we're concluding our series looking at the book of Philippians, a letter that Paul uh, wrote to this early church in this place called Philippi. And we've been using this particular letter to, to share with you some of what we think God is saying to us as to what we should be and what we should do as a church over the next four or five years. And uh, I want to just unpack that and just summarize it this evening for you and challenge you, hopefully, as to how you can get involved and how you can play your part. And I want to begin by asking you a question, a question perhaps that you were asked many years ago, a question perhaps that is still alive for you now. What do you want to be when you grow it's a question that primary school teachers are very fond of asking. What do you want to be when you grow up? When I was a, 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 a school pupil uh, sometime in the last millennium, uh, in the last century, uh, I was very clear. I wanted to be either a lawyer or I wanted to be a sports journalist. Those are the two things that I wanted to be. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and tell them what your ambition still is or once was of what you want to do when you grow up. If you're in your 60s, it may be too late, but just turn to each other. Um, I can say that because I nearly am. Uh, but just share with each other what you think you might do when you grow up. Okay, um, so hands up. Uh, any doctors? Anybody want to be a doctor? Yeah, anybody who is a doctor still wants to be a doctor, okay? Nate, you wanted to be a doctor? Yeah, okay. He's wearing a sweatshirt with the word Funkle on it. That sort of says it all, really. Um, anyone who went on to be a teacher? Anybody school teachers? Okay. Anybody who is a school teacher who wants... Oh, good. That's good that you want to be a school teacher. Uh, judges? Footballers? Anybody? Yeah, okay. George, you want to be a professional footballer? Shanks, you want to be a professional footballer? The dream is now dead, Shanks. Um, uh, anybody else? Uh, astronaut? Anybody want to be an astronaut? Astronaut? Laura, you want to be an astronaut? You can still be an astronaut, even though you're married to Josh. You can still... I would know of no other better reason to escape to the moon 
than being married to Josh. That would be a fantastic idea. Any, uh, yeah, any, okay, that's great. Lots of, uh, lots of ideas. Um, people who asked this question in primary schools about 10 years ago noticed a change. Because when they used to ask people a question, people come out with footballer or doctor or astronaut or whatever it might be. And then about 10 years ago, something started to happen. School kids started to give a very different answer. And the answer that people started to give was one particular thing. They wanted to be a celebrity. They wanted to be a celebrity. They wanted to be famous. And when the school teacher said, but yeah, but what do you want to be famous for? The school kids had no answer. And it still is the most popular answer that, that kids will give when asked that particular question. What do you want to be when you grow up? People will say, I want to be famous. I want to be a celebrity. There's a famous quote from a woman called Margaret Mead who said this, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I'll repeat it. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I want to tell you this evening about one particular group, small group of people who changed the world 220 years ago. Churches like ours are often known by their initials. Uh, we're known as P's and G's. Before I uh, came to work for this church, I asked what the P's and the G's stood for. And the people who were t uh, chatting with me said, uh, well, lots of people actually say that it stands for pressure and guilt. Um, that has never been my experience at this church. That's before I came to work for it. The most well-known at the moment is a church called HDB, Holy Trinity Brompton in London, uh, that's given birth to the Alpha course and the marriage prep course that we use and the marriage course. And they've planted churches uh, right across England. And indeed, they planted a church over into Malaysia, into Bangkok, and they gave it the original name of HDBB because it's HDB in Bangkok, and they couldn't think of any other initials uh, to change, name it by. But long before there was P's and G's, long before there was HTB, there was another church, and it was called HTC. Not HTB, but HTC. This is a picture of the church. It's called Holy Trinity Clapham. Uh, or if you're trying to sell a flat, apparently you call it Clam because it sounds posher. Um, but Holy Trinity Clapham in South London. And about 200, 220 years ago, there was a small group of people in this particular church that changed the world. The rector was a guy called John Venn. He was the rector doing the job that I do here from 1792 to 1813. And if you're looking what it might look like for us as a church to fulfill the vision and the strategy that we think God has given to us, well, just listen to what this church in South London, what God did through them. If you remember of Holy Trinity Clapham of HTC at that time, you committed to spend three hours every day in prayer. Just putting it out there. But they spend each day three hours in prayer, if you remember. You entered into a rule of life where you committed to do that. They were known as being generous with their time and their money. 
They founded something called a church missionary society that over the last 220, 250 years has sent thousands of missionaries across the world. And now those countries that we used to send missionaries to are sending missionaries back to the UK to evangelize and share our population with the Christian faith because we're in such a state as a nation. They were known to study the Bible regularly. They were known for their joy. And they were known for this group of people, this small group of people who were known as the Clapham sect. And this small group of people included uh, some politicians like William Wilberforce and Lord Shaftesbury who went on to form the Children's Society. They were known as a small group in this particular church as having been influential in improving government in India and Sierra Leone. Just think about that. This church in South London became known for influencing government in India, thousands of miles away in Sierra Leone. They shaped the way in which those two nations were governed. They shaped and fashioned the way in which those two nations were looked after. They improved education for children in the UK, and they began the Sunday School movement. They supported the Factory Act that revolutionized working conditions for the lowly paid. They campaigned successfully against blood sports and dueling and gambling. They set higher standards in public debate and politics. Imagine that, a church influencing the way in which a nation did politics. And then as a footnote, they helped to abolish the transatlantic slave trade. One church in South London did all of that. And I've been reflecting this week upon our vision and our strategy and what we think God is calling us to do. To plant a couple of churches in the next five years. To... to play our part in helping to transform society, maybe to have a, a wellness or a wholeness center. We thought about how we might change lives, about how we might play our part in transforming society, about how we might deepen our influence in the city and across the nation. But when I compare it to the way in which God used HTC 220 years ago, it seems a bit puny by comparison. It seems a bit small if you compare our vision with what God did through Holy Trinity Clapham 220 years ago. But what does it mean for us to live as whole life disciples of Jesus? What does it mean for us to be a church that calls people to be whole life disciples, to share the whole of the gospel with the whole of society through churches of grace? Well, I think we get a clue from that letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, the section of which Joy read for us a few moments ago. And one particular clue is something, a phrase, that the Apostle Paul uses again and again and again. It's a phrase that some of us are quite familiar with. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3 and Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 and Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul refers to Jesus in this way. He refers to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, what's revolutionary? What's different about that? We've become sort of immune to it. 
But it was actually quite significant what the Apostle Paul was doing. You see, what he wasn't saying was, he wasn't referring to the Lord who is Jesus, i.e. compared to all the other lords, there's the one that's called Jesus. He wasn't one amongst many. And neither, somewhat unusually, does he refer to him as my Lord Jesus. Even though he knew Jesus personally, even though he'd met Jesus uh, on the road to Damascus where Paul was going to persecute the church and try and wipe it off the face of the earth, the risen Jesus had appeared to him in a dream, in a vision, and his whole life had been changed. Paul doesn't refer to Jesus as my Lord Jesus. He refers to him as the Lord Jesus. Not one amongst many, not just my personal Jesus or Lord, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And what people reckon Paul was doing was he was contrasting Jesus' way of being Lord with somebody else's way of being Lord. And that somebody else was Caesar, the Roman emperor. Tom Wright, who used to be the Bishop of Durham and now works at the University of St. Andrews, has said this, Paul's gospel was a royal proclamation aimed at challenging other royal proclamations. Caesar demanded worship as well as secular obedience, not just taxes, but sacrifices. He was well on the way to becoming the supreme divinity in the Greco-Roman world. You see, what was starting to happen was that Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor, had started to say not just that he was the emperor, but actually he was more than that, that he was divine, that he was God, and that you had to worship him as a god. And actually what he was proclaiming, the gospel that Caesar was announcing, the good news, the declaration, the proclamation from uh, the Roman Empire was that Caesar was the Lord. And that's why the Apostle Paul speaks about and writes about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's deliberately doing is he's setting Jesus up in opposition to Caesar. He's saying, for all Caesar's power, for all Caesar's pomp and majesty and wealth and military might, actually there is one who is more powerful. More powerful than Caesar and one to whom we should owe allegiance. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, with that statement, the Apostle Paul was actually committing treason. It was subverting the rule of Caesar. He was saying that if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, a Christ follower, then your first allegiance has to be to the Lord Jesus Christ, as opposed to Caesar. And it was very costly for Paul to do that. Remember, he's writing this letter from prison. He's been beaten up, he's been whipped, he's been flogged for saying that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, because it meant Caesar wasn't. And Paul is, is putting these two things against each other and saying, you think Caesar's powerful? I want to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is over all things. He is the name above every name. 
He is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But behind this appeal, he says something else. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. He says something again that seems at face value quite simple and straightforward. He says to this church in Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven. And at first glance, you think, well, okay, what's he saying? Basically, when we die, we're going to go to heaven. Is that what Paul is saying? No, he's saying a lot more than that. He's saying something far more significant than that. Philippi was a Roman colony. And it was colonized after a civil war that took place in the Roman Empire after Julius Caesar had been murdered. And there was a a sort of struggle for, for power. And Caesar Augustus won this civil war. But then he did something quite cute. He did something very sharp. Rather than allowing all the soldiers who'd fought against his forces back to Rome, he said, no, 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 you, you, I'll tell you what, you stay where you are. Don't all come back to Rome so that you're around in Rome and therefore you can overthrow me at any point you want. What we'll do is we'll set up Philippi as a Roman colony. And and you can have land in Philippi, and you can have houses in Philippi, and you can make Philippi a Roman colony. You can colonize the city of Philippi as a Roman colony. And you'll have dual citizenship. Um, That's quite a popular phrase at the moment. People are looking for dual citizenship for various reasons. Uh, Those of us who uh, are UK citizens are are searching through our ancestry. We're Googling to see if somewhere we've got an Irish relative so that somehow we can get an Irish passport, that when we go on holiday, we can have that Irish passport and still queue up in the EU citizen line when we're coming back into the country after March the 29th and Brexit has happened. Paul says, you have dual citizenship. You are citizens of Philippi, he's saying, but you're also, and more importantly, citizens of heaven. You may be proud of the fact, and the Philippians were really proud of the fact that they were citizens of Philippi. They were ex-military. They were quite proud people. And he says, you're citizens of Philippi, but more important, you're citizens of heaven. And what he's doing is he's playing with words. And he's saying, if you're a citizen of Rome, your job in Philippi is to colonize Rome. What did that mean? That meant that you had to build a sort of mini version of Rome in Philippi. And this happened that the building, lots of the buildings were raised to the ground. And miniature versions of the buildings in Rome were built in Philippi. And the idea was that that Philippi became a Rome from Rome. It became a sort of miniature version of Rome, that the streets were the same, the architecture was the same. And and over several years, the culture and the society and the architecture and the politics mirrored that of Rome because that was your job as a citizen of Philippi because if it was a Roman colony, you were to colonize Philippi for Rome. So do you see what Paul is saying when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven? He's saying, if you say that you're a Christian, 
If you show allegiance to Jesus Christ, if you are a Christ follower, if you recognize that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is in charge, not Caesar, then your job is to colonize Philippi, not just for Rome, but more importantly, for heaven. Your job is to make Philippi a miniature version of heaven. That's what he means when he says, our citizenship is in heaven. You see, the part of the church that we belong to, quite rightly at times over the last two or three hundred years, has emphasized the need for a personal living relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've talked about the benefits and what that means, that if you're a personal uh, if you've got a personal living faith in Jesus, that when you die, you go to be in heaven. Now that's brilliant, and that is life-changing and death-changing. And we celebrated that on Friday afternoon here in church as we gave thanks for the life of Margaret Johnson, who'd been a member of this church for well over 30 years, and in her mid-80s she died, and we celebrated the fact that Margaret now is more alive than she has ever been. And she's enjoying the riches and the comforts and the splendor of heaven. But the difficulty is that you can emphasize that too much. You can emphasize it so much that that's all you're concerned about. And that you start to think that the Christian faith and eternal life is actually what happens when you die. Whereas eternal life was supposed to be here and now. It's supposed to be not just life after death, but life before death. That it's about a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. Because we have these amazing pictures in the Bible again and again of what heaven could be like. We're given pictures. Jesus never actually says what heaven really is. He, he always says the kingdom of heaven is like dot, 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 and tells a, a story. Because no one picture actually sums it up. But there are pictures of parties and pictures of cailies and pictures of wedding banquets and pictures of reunions. And again and again, the Bible speaks about heaven coming down. Somehow, in the last three or four hundred years, the part of the church, the evangelical church that, that we belong to, has often emphasized us going up to heaven. But actually, the Old Testament and the New Testament have far more to say about heaven coming down. Because if we are citizens of heaven, our job is to colonize Edinburgh. Our job is to make Edinburgh, if we live in Edinburgh, or Glasgow, if we live in Glasgow, albeit more challenging, Perth, if we live in Perth, or Stirling, or Aberdeen, or wherever it is you live normally, if you are a Christ follower, Paul says, your job is to colonize where you live so that it becomes a miniature version of heaven. Your job is to bring heaven down to where you live. Now, in Revelation 21, we have this amazing picture where we have the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new city, coming down from heaven to earth. And God speaks about that when that happens, when I, either when Jesus comes back or, or when this heavenly city descends, then, then there'll be no more illness, there'll be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more disease, no more death, no more mourning, because the old order of things has passed away. There'll be no more injustice, there'll be no more poverty, 
The world will be not just as it once was, but it will actually be better than it once was because it will be a redeemed version of the way that God made it. And it will be better than it was before. Until that day comes, your job, my job, our responsibilities is to live in such a way that we already belong to that kingdom and that we are to enable heaven to come down to Edinburgh. We pray it, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our responsibility is to see heaven come to earth. Our responsibility is to colonize the city of Edinburgh for the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Dallas Willard, who was a writer on spirituality, said this, to be a Christian, a person of faith, is precisely to live as a person for whom God's future shapes the present. Well, what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, there's some clues in those verses that Joy read for us from Philippians chapter 2. And the first, in the first four verses, is a Christ-like attitude. And Paul basically, in different ways, asks four quite sharp questions that, in essence, are different ways of saying the same thing. In essence, what Paul is saying is, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you know if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you're able to say yes to at least one of these four questions. And so he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, does being a Christ follower encourage you? Literally, the words that he has written means, has Jesus ever come and whispered in your ear? Has Jesus ever come and whispered in your ear? Has he ever drawn alongside you and gone, you're okay. <laughs> I love you. I'm with you. It will be all right. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, but I give to you. Paul says if you can answer yes, we'll live differently. Has Jesus literally ever whispered in your Ear. Secondly, have you ever received comfort from the love of Jesus? Literally, has God's love ever helped you or reassured you in your darkest moment? Maybe you haven't heard Jesus speak to you in that way. But maybe something happened in your life. Maybe it was a medical diagnosis. Maybe it was a bereavement. Maybe it was unemployment. Maybe it's a relationship that just went completely wrong. Maybe it was something that's so catastrophic that happened in your life that it made you doubt whether God actually existed. And what Paul is saying is not just has God ever spoken to you, but maybe at a time when paradoxically God seems miles away, you haven't heard God come and speak to you. <coughs> but you've just known that you are not alone. You've known God just come and stand with you and maybe not say anything. But the knowledge that God is there with you has transformed the way 
in which you've seen yourself or seen that situation or seen that other people or maybe it's even changed the way in which you see God himself. Third question is, have you any fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Literally, again, Paul's writing and saying, have you taken a cupful? Have you taken a handful of the Holy Spirit? And he's, he's sort of painting a picture saying, have you ever been tired and asked God for more strength? Ever been weak and asked God for more power? Have you ever been anxious and asked for God's peace? Have you ever been despairing and asked God for hope? And if you like taking a cupful, a handful, you've, you've put your hands in, and dipped your hands in the Holy Spirit and, and drunk of the Holy Spirit. And as you've allowed God to meet with you, you felt more hopeful, you felt more peaceful, you felt more joyful, you felt more strength, more power in your life. And then fourthly and finally, have you any tenderness or compassion? Literally, has your gut, your stomach, your heart, the very depth of your being ever been touched or melted or moved by knowing how much God loves you, by knowing how much God is patient with you, by how much God believes in you and wants the best for you? Well, Paul says, if the answer is yes to any of those questions, then make my joy complete. And remember, he's writing this from prison. So what would make your joy complete if you're in prison? The key? doesn't say that. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, being of one spirit. This was a church we looked at last week where people disagreed with each other. It was a normal church like this one where people fell out with each other, where relationships went wrong. And Paul says, make my joy complete by being united in spirit, being united with one heart and mind. And he moves then to talk about three attitudes, being humble, compassionate, and caring. And then in the words of Chuck Yule, he moves from prose to poetry, from instruction to incarnation. And we have in verses 5 to 11 this repetition or recitation of what would have been perhaps an early Christian song or an early Christian hymn or an early Christian creed that people were taught when they first became Christians to remember who God is and what Jesus has done. Because Paul says if you can answer yes to any of those questions then your relationship should be different have the mind, same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. One version has equality with God something to be grasped or held onto. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." And it's almost like a sort of descent. The, the technical word is kenosis. That, that's the Greek word. It, it means emptying. And what is being described is the way in which Jesus empties himself. Not of his divinity, not of the fact that he's God, but he empties himself of the status and the power and the majesty and the glory. And it, it descends like a sort of 
stairwell down, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the whole point of it is it's supposed to bring you down to the point where some of you can't see me. Because that's the point. Because that's what it meant for Jesus to come from eternity to time, from glory to Bethlehem, from power and majesty to frailty and weakness, to descend to such a place Eventually, Jesus ends up on a cross, dying the death that people said showed that anybody who died like that on a tree was cursed by God, and that God had turned his back on those people who died on a tree. And it shows the extent of what it meant for Jesus to become a human being, for Jesus to be born and Jesus to live and eventually for Jesus to die, that he came so low. He literally came down to our level and took our sin upon himself, that he was cursed by his heavenly Father and there was division in the Trinity and the very Godhead itself was split and the Father turns his back on the Son And therefore, that's why God raised him up. Therefore, Paul says, that's why God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he's supposed to go up because you've gone down so low. And that's the reason that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's the reason that Jesus ascended into heaven. And that's the reason that Jesus is the Lord, because he's now back in his rightful place, in charge of everything. And that's what it means for Jesus to be involved in our lives. Tim Keller says this, The Christian life is a process of renewing every dimension of our life, spiritual, psychological, corporate and social, by thinking, hoping and living out the ramifications of the gospel. The gospel is to be applied to every idea of our thinking, feeling, relating, working and behaving. That's what it means to be a whole life disciples. That our faith is as relevant, if you're in a nightclub, as if you're in a church. That your faith is as relevant if you're on the factory floor as it is if you're in a prayer room. That your faith is as relevant and applicable if you're on the football terraces as when you're singing a worship song. When you're in the sports club or when you're in your connect group. That there's no division between the two. That if you're in your lecture hall or your seminar room as a student or your classroom as a school pupil, that is as holy a place as the youth group on a Friday night or the CU meeting or the student gathering or whatever it is you go 
to learn what it is to be a disciple. It means that every single area of every single person's life is to be affected by the fact that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Never doubt the effectiveness and the power of a small group of people to change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. This early church, beginning with those 12, 11 men and a few women, within 150, 200 years, turned the known world upside down. The Greek world, the Roman world, the Jewish world was turned upside down because of the church. Not because they were particularly spiritual always, not because they went around singing worship songs or learning scripture, although those things were important. Because of the lives that they lived. That when the plague or disease or sickness came to a city and everybody in that city started to leave, the church were the ones going the other way. Just think about Wilberforce and Shaftesbury. 220 years ago. A group of 10, 15 people, a small group that God used to change the known world 220 years ago. And we believe in the same God who's able to take a small group of people and maybe even this evening there's somebody who could be this generation Shaftesbury or this generation's Wilberforce. And that God is putting something even into your heart now that 20, 30, 40 years from now will change the known world because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. That may seem impossible. For you, the challenge may be something much closer to home and something actually that at the moment seems more difficult. Wherever we are, whoever we are, God wants to take us and use us to show other people that he loves them, he longs to be in a relationship with them, and that if they'll enter into life with him, then it will make all the difference in this life and also the next. And that's how we see lives changed. That's how we see society transformed. That's how we deepen not our influence, but that's how we deepen the influence of the kingdom in our city, in our nation. But it begins with our lives, our hearts, our minds.